We're entering into a new series here heading up to Easter um, called Discovering Jesus. And I think Ken described to us the board in the back of um, reflecting the name of Jesus and that Jesus is something that needs to be or somebody that needs to be revealed to us. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks talking about who Jesus is as we lead up to Easter. So today we're going to be in John chapter 14 and we're going to be studying chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 um, over the next few weeks, and which is really Jesus' last kind of big sermon um, before he was crucified, his last words that he gave to his disciples. And today specifically, we're going to be looking at how Jesus revealed um, the Father. And when you think about something that needs to be revealed, why does something need to be revealed? I think there's a few reasons. One, it could be hidden. Um, If it wasn't hidden, it wouldn't need to be revealed, right? And so if something's revealed, it's something that isn't easily seen. Number two, if something's going to be revealed, maybe it's something that could be misunderstood. And so by providing clarity, by providing um, further understanding, something is revealed to us. Or maybe it's something brand new, something that um, is like the new Apple Watch or whatever's coming out on our market. It's brand new, so it's revealed to us. And what Jesus came to reveal is really all three of these things. The Bible talks about the hidden mystery of the gospel of Christ, of salvation that would come to man. It was hidden before Christ came, but in him it was revealed. Um, Jesus was oftentimes misunderstood, but yet through his life and through his resurrection, it was revealed that he was the son of God. And ultimately he came to bring the new covenant, a new way um, to connect with God and to really be one with the person of Jesus Christ. But as we look at what Jesus revealed specifically in the Father, I want to turn to John chapter 13, um, which is right before John chapter 14. But I want to read a little bit in context of what we're going to be studying today. So I want to start in John 13, verse 36. And we're going to read all the way to uh, John 14, uh, verse 17. And so the scripture will be on the screen. I'm reading out New King James, or you can turn with me um, there in your Bible. So in John 13, 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. But Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name that I will do, the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So I wanted to read that chunk of scripture for a couple reasons. First, because we've got three um, characters in this scripture besides Jesus. We've got Peter, we've got Thomas, and we've got Philip. Now at this point in the scripture, these three guys had been following Jesus for over three years. And they'd seen him teach, they'd seen him do miracles, they'd seen him raise the dead, they'd, they'd spent time with him, they ate meals with him, but yet they'd been with him for three straight years and yet all three of them are confused in this section of scripture. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, even though he'd been teaching them for so long. And Peter is showing some self-confidence, right, before this chapter that he would even die for Jesus. But yet later on, we're gonna find that he betrays Jesus. Thomas, if you read the scriptures, always is doubting, is always questioning Jesus. And he shows his doubt and his fear here. And Philip, for some reason, um, is still confused. And we're gonna see later on in today's sermon that Jesus had been saying these exact things for a long time. But there was something that was blinding the disciples that they were unable to comprehend what Jesus was saying. And I believe the same thing that was causing them to be unable to really understand and, and see the revealed person of Jesus Christ is the same thing that hinders us, that stops us from understanding who Jesus is. But the good news is, is, is that the solution that Christ brought to them so that they could know him is the same solution that he has given us today. And that each one of us would really be able to reflect of where is our, not just our understanding and acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, but where is our active trust and our active faith, our active knowing of the person of Jesus Christ. Because as I was thinking about this, I don't know if you guys have seen, ever seen like a picture of, um, like the Amazon forest, or it looks like the Amazon forest where it's got the big um, rocks or big cliffs and in between the big cliffs is like a big rope ladder um, or, or rope bridge that's connecting these two, two cliffs. And I always wonder, man, who would ever walk across that thing? Because when you look at those, one, it doesn't look very stable. Two, it's like, do you really need to get on the other side that bad, right? And it's one thing to acknowledge that that ladder exists. It's one thing to acknowledge it's there and it may or may not be safe. It's another thing to put your active trust and actually walk across that ladder and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to make it to the other side. And in order for us to truly put our trust in Jesus, we need the grace of God and ultimately the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our minds and our hearts. And I hear this a lot of times, and this is a true statement, but all you have to do to be saved is believe. But I think sometimes we minimize, and we talked about this in our series in James, what does it actually mean to believe that faith, true faith that's activated by God in our hearts is the most powerful method of change that exists this side of heaven. Faith is not a small thing, but faith, true faith is something that radically and totally changes our, li our lives. And we can't underestimate the power of what faith can really do. 
So I want to start in John chapter 14, verse one, that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And so he just got done telling Peter, you're going to deny me. The other disciples are going to be scattered and that he was leaving. And so the disciples' hearts were troubled. They were afraid and they were confused. And if you've been alive very long, you know that in this life, your heart will be troubled, whether it's sufferings, whether it's tribulations, whether it's the unknown, that our heart becomes troubled. But Jesus gives a few promises here of why no matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstance we face, we can have peace and our heart can remain steadfast. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. There's two really important things that Jesus is talking about here. One, he's talking about the end game of our faith. That ultimately Jesus is talking about that he was going to go to heaven. He was going to go to the Father. And at some point, he was going to come back for his disciples. That he was promising them the security of eternal life. And one thing that is absolutely vital if we are going to understand and follow Jesus Christ is to have an eternal perspective. Our life is not about this life. If we feel like our life is about this life, you will have a life of trouble and you, have a, you will have a life of heartache because this life is inconsistent. We don't know what's gonna happen. We are not in control of our day-to-day lives and calamity can come at any moment in suffering. Jesus says it rains on the just and on the unjust. Just because you're a good person does not mean you're gonna go through this life without suffering. And so if our life is focused on this life, we will find ourselves to be disappointed. But if we have a life that's centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in an eternal perspective, we can be content in any circumstance. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, he lays this out that it's so important for believers to understand the will of God. And I think that's one of the number one questions as a pastor you get is, you know, what is God's will for my life? And the Bible actually spells it out. I can't tell you and no one can tell you specifically what to do all the time, but there is a general but yet specific will of God that he lays out for us that is very important for us to understand. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time or making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. See, right here, we actually have a command to understand what the will of God is. And this is what's our compass in life. Through the word of God, we can know the will of God. And that's what Jesus is bringing the disciples to. Don't let your heart be troubled because you should know the end game. You should know that I'm gonna rise from the dead and I am going to save your souls. And if the will of God and the plan of God for your life is unclear, that's something we wanna help you with. That's why we have discipleship. That's why we have classes that we would like to come alongside you that you can be confident and what God's um, plan and will is for your life. If you turn back to John 14, the second part that Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Now this isn't just a random um, example that Jesus is giving, but he's referring to the Jewish culture of marriage, that when a man would um, be engaged to a woman in the Jewish culture, he would leave and he would build a house that would be connected to his father's house. And so during that time, his fiance 
would not get to see him, that they were separated. But she knew when the house was ready to go, when the house was completed and the father said, hey, this is ready. You need to go back and you need to get your bride. So not only is Jesus promising the disciples eternal life because he's sovereign um, and because he's the Messiah, but he's promising them in an aspect of love, that he's promising them by reflecting this to a marriage relationship of commitment and of love and of sacrificial love to them. So Jesus is saying, I'm basically getting engaged to you guys. I'm giving you um, my engagement ring. I'm going back to my father. I'm building this home and I will come back for you. Not just because I'm in control, but because I love you and because I'm committed to you. So in a life that has a lot of suffering and pain and unknown, Jesus is saying our heart doesn't have to be in trouble. One, because he's in control, but two, that he's providing a way for us to be assured of our eternal salvation because he's committed to us out of love, just like within a marriage. In verse five, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? But Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now, I know sometimes if you're reading um, the words of Jesus in the gospels and it can seem kind of cryptic, like you don't always fault the disciples for not knowing what's going on because it seems like he's, you know, he's speaking in parables. He's saying things that don't seem very easy to understand. But at this point in his ministry, he has said this a lot of times, a lot of times. And not only has he said this, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, but he had demonstrated that he was the Messiah. But there was something going on in Peter and Thomas and Philip's life that was blinding them. And the thing we have to remember is Peter denies him, Thomas denies him, and Philip denies him. But what was the end result of these three guys? Peter ends up being the lead apostle with the early church is a, basically a, a juggernaut for the faith, for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he preaches Jesus so boldly that he ends up being crucified upside down by the Roman government. Thomas, who was doubting his entire life following Jesus, ends up being an apostle to India. And he's also martyred by being speared to death by the local government. Philip, who also is doubting, he's confused in this passage. He ends up being a missionary to um, the Greeks and also ends up being crucified. That these three men didn't stay confused, so what changed? I believe what changed is this understanding of who Jesus Christ really was. They were hearing it, but they weren't understanding it. And that can be the same thing that is true of us today. We can be hearing it. We can be around it. I had a guy tell me one time, you know, you can't grow spiritually by osmosis. You can't just be close to spiritual people. All of a sudden you turn out spiritual, that you have to take ownership for your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have to be able to come to a place of brokenness. The thing that happened to Peter, the thing that happened to Thomas and the thing that happened to Philip is God had to strip them of everything. He had to bring them to a place of complete brokenness in order for them to understand who Jesus Christ really was. But this is actually the sixth time Jesus has used a statement that is, I am. And Jesus says this a lot in the book of John because um, Moses, when he met the Lord in the wilderness, he asked the Lord, who should I tell Israel that you are? God. And God said, you should tell them I am. I am who I am. And Jesus is using this phrase over and over and over. I am, I am, I am. Not just because he likes saying I am, because he's proving a point that he is God in the flesh. But yet his disciples who were with him for three years, 
still don't recognize him. They can't understand that God is standing right in front of them. So we're gonna look at these I am statements and who is Jesus Christ. John chapter six, verse 35, if you'll turn there, we are going to find that Jesus is the sustainer of life. John 6, verse 35, he says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. Jesus picks being the bread of life and living water um, for a specific reason. That in the wilderness, when Israel was wandering after they had been freed out of Egypt, um, they didn't have food and they didn't have water. So where did they get it? When you're in the desert, how do you get food and how do you get water? Well, God gave them manna from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the manna from heaven, but I'm not here to just satisfy your physical needs to give you a physical life, but I'm here to give you eternal life, that you will be eternally satisfied if you eat of my body and ultimately would drink of my blood, as he says in John chapter six. But in addition to this, he says, if you drink, you'll never thirst again. And when Israel was stuck in the wilderness, God provided water for them from a rock. And through that water, they were sustained physically. But Jesus said, I'm not here to sustain you with physical water, but I'm here to sustain you with spiritual water so that you would never thirst again. That Jesus in this statement is making a very similar statement to John chapter 14. He is the way, the truth, and the life, but he is also the sustainer of life. He is the bread of life and he is living water. In John chapter eight, we find our next I am statement from Jesus. In John chapter eight, verse 12, it says, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That Jesus is the source of life. Without light, there is no life but not just physical life, but specifically spiritual life. Verse 13, the Pharisees um, therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. That once again, Jesus is saying, not only am I the source of life and light, but I am one with the father. He's making this connection that I am not only sent by the Father, but I am one with him. And together, we make witness that what I am saying and what I am doing is true. John chapter 10, 
um, verse 7, we get our next I am statement. So again, all these are happening before John 14. Philip, Thomas, Peter, they have all these opportunities to understand what Jesus is saying, and they're not getting it. John chapter 10, verse 7. And these are only the ones recorded. I'm sure there was more times that he said these things. 10.7 says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Again, he's the way. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he was not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So not only is Jesus the sustainer of life, the source of life, but he's the protector of our life. That He's the one who's willing to lay down his life for ours that we can taste eternal life. And why is he doing this? Not because he's hired, not because he has to, but ultimately because he loves us, because he's choosing to make us his bride and to prepare a place for us. So John chapter 11, we get our next I am statement. That Jesus is the sustainer of life, the source of life, the protector of life. And now we're going to find that he has the power over life and death in the story of raising Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 17, he says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Talking about Lazarus, he's been dead four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that you will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to him, or she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So not only does Jesus have the power to raise people from the dead and the power over the last day to raise people from the dead, but he is always sovereign. He always has the power and authority currently of life and death. And the last I am statement is John chapter 15, which is after John 14. So they didn't get this one, but they got the other ones. This repeated message over and over and over of who Jesus is. But I want to read John 15, 1 through um, 4, that talks to us again about Jesus being the source of life. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So once again, Jesus saying, just like a branch has no life apart from a vine, the same is true if we have no life 
apart from Jesus Christ. We may think we're living, but we're really dead people living is what the Bible would call it. That Jesus over and over and over says, I am, I am, I am. I'm offering you this life. I'm offering you this hope in my resurrection that I am God in the flesh. But yet we get to John 14 and they're still not understanding. That in verse eight, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. I love this because Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and yet you do not know me, Philip? He's saying, I am the father. I am God in the flesh. I've been standing right here in front of you. I've been proclaiming to you that I am the way of salvation. I have come to save your soul, that I am God. But yet they still could not understand what Jesus was saying. In verse 10, he says, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the work themselves. He continues to say, and I think this is really important, of Jesus sets an expectation of what faith will look like. How do we know if we have faith? Because a lot of times we can find ourselves like Peter and like Thomas and Philip where we are sincere. We want to have faith. We want to follow God. But yet, how do we know? How do we know that we're not just fooling ourselves or just like them, we're trying really hard, but we're completely missing the point. Well, Jesus gives an expectation here in verse 12. He says, Moses, surely I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus continues to tell us in verse 15, which we're not going to necessarily study today, but he tells us again the fruit of believing. He says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then he says, There'll be fruit, there'll be evidence. And even though there was a willingness from the disciples, the evidence of their belief was still hindered. Jesus even says that to Philip. Do you not believe what I've been telling you? Have you not understood what I've been saying? And what does Jesus mean that we will do greater works? He did pretty great works, right? Rose the dead, walked on water, healed the blind, cast out demons. So is he expecting all of us to do that all the time? I believe there's two main things that he's talking about here. One, I believe he's talking about greater in extent that Jesus said it would be better for him to leave so that he could send us the Holy Spirit than for him to stay on earth. Because when Jesus was on earth, he was, he was a man. He was both God and man. He could only be in one location at one time. But when Jesus left and he sent us the Holy Spirit, he gave us the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead all over the world. And so believers in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, can represent Jesus Christ at the same time that a believer in South Africa or a believer, believer in China or a believer in Russia can be demonstrating the works of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that we will perform greater works because we will cover a greater amount of ground. But number two, what's the one work that I don't believe happened until Jesus Christ rose from the dead was salvation. That he had not paid for sin. He had not allowed that opportunity for men to repent and believe and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And I believe seeing someone raised from the dead spiritually is a greater miracle than seeing someone raised from the dead physically. That the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no hope without God. That we can't just decide one day, you know, I think I want to start trying and believing in God. That unless by the Spirit of God, our spirit is rose from the dead, resurrected, we have no hope. And that Jesus is saying, when I leave, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you my gospel. And through your preaching, you're going to see dead men 
rise again. And on at Pentecost, Peter fulfills this prophecy because he preaches and 3,000 people rose from dead to life spiritually by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why were they missing it? Why after all this information and them seeing Jesus fulfill all these prophecies and over and over telling them who he was and what he was gonna do, why couldn't they see it? One, I believe it was because partially because of God's timing. He hadn't given the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to discern what um, God is saying and we need the Holy Spirit to discern who Jesus Christ is. But number two, I believe this was true because of their own sin. I, I kind of referred to this earlier, but G, or, um, Peter still had a lot of pride. He had a lot of pride in his heart and he was unwilling to be broken before Jesus. When Jesus warned him about betraying him, he's saying, no, 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 you know, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. I'll follow you to the end. But yet Peter's pride was still in his way. Thomas's doubt and fear was still in his way. Philip preserving his life and, and um, rejecting Jesus Christ at his crucifixion was still in the way. And Jesus had to bring these guys to a point of total and complete abandonment of their own life. They had to come to a place where they were totally surrendered and totally broken before Christ. And each one of us has to come to that point too. We can't come to God on our own terms, holding on to our own strength, but we need to come to a place where we are totally bankrupt without Jesus. And Jesus does this by looking Peter in the face and saying, Peter, after you've rejected me, after you've failed, after you've hidden, he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter needed to ask, ask that question and answer that question to himself. Do I love Jesus Christ more than I love my own comfort? Thomas, after all the disciples had seen um, Jesus, what's Thomas doing? He's still doubting, <laughs> he's still running. He doesn't wanna believe that Jesus is risen from the dead until Jesus stands right before him and says, Thomas, put your fingers in my side, put your fingers in my hands and see that I, have, I am the resurrected Christ. And from that encounter with Jesus, Thomas was never the, never the same. And Philip had to have the same encounter. But there's a problem that all humans have and that problem's sin. And sin blinds our hearts, it darkens our minds that we can't understand God. And before we're saved, the Bible says we are completely blind, but even when we are saved, even when we have given our life to Christ, we can come to the point where we're walking in spiritual darkness. The Bible is clear that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we can quench the Holy Spirit, that if we're not actively having active faith of laying ourselves at the foot of the cross, we too can become spiritually blind. We're coming to church every day. We're going to our discipleship groups. We're going to Bible studies, but yet the truth of Jesus Christ isn't sinking into our hearts and we remain confused and we remain unchanged. In Romans chapter one, we'll close with this. He gives a very good example of what this looks like on a practical level. Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their th thoughts. 
Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, God not only showed us that he was true through the law, through the prophets, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, but God made an entire universe that showed us there was something greater than us out there. But yet the Bible's saying that man, even though we've known there's a God, we've chosen to try to be our own savior. We've chosen at times to do what we believe we wanna do, what's gonna make us feel good over what we believe to be the will of God. And the result of that, the Bible says that by unrighteousness, by sin, we suppress the truth. Later in Romans 2, it says that every man has been given a conscience. No matter where you grow up, no matter what religion, God has given us a conscience that we can understand good and evil at some level. And every single person has rejected that. Every single person has known what's good, has known what's right at some level, and has chosen not to do it. And by that, we suppress the truth and we make ourselves blind towards the truth of God. In verse 24, he continues to tell us the result of this. It says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their heart. So God's saying, if you want it, you can have it. To dishonor their bodies among themselves, you who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to file passions. Their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not, like, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind or a seared conscience. Sin no longer bothered them so they could do the things which are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them that when we look at what Jesus is offering, he's not just offering us a religion or something we can understand intellectually, but what Jesus is offering us is to be the sustainer and the source of our life so that we could actually change. And I know, I know there's people here who you want to change, but you can't change. You can't change just by trying to be more disciplined. You can't change by just coming to church. But the only way we can actually change, really be a new person, is by tasting and seeing and understanding the person of Jesus Christ. But that can't happen until we come to a level of brokenness and repentance and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. There's no amount of stuff I can do. There's no amount of counseling I can go to. There's no amounts of lectures I can hear that I need a savior, Jesus, to actually resurrect my soul that I am dead without you. 